0: we don't really push the envelope more like open it this is litopia after dark the net's first and foremost literary salon a feast of ideas for your hungry mind so pull up a chair and let's talk Good evening and welcome to Utopia After Dark. Tonight we demonstrate that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. Alexander Litvinenko was murdered just down the road from where I am now, and a mere stone's throw away from the U.S. Embassy. That was in 2006. Seven years later, the inquest is at last scheduled to begin in a few weeks' time. The case is baroque in its complexity. Frederick Forsyth, one of the world's most famous thriller writers, and who rose to fame with the Day of the Jackal, you may recall, has said his publisher would never believe such an unrealistic plotline. And best-selling author Andy McNabb says that trying to explain the story to publishing folk would take all day. It would confuse everybody, he says. Nevertheless, that's what we're going to do tonight with the help of the man who wrote the definitive book on the topic, New York Times special correspondent Alan Cowell. So suspend your disbelief. As we enter the shadowy world of billionaire oligarchs, international assassins and triple agents on tonight's edition of Latopia After Dark. It's time. Time to discuss weighty matters. To weight up momentous issues. To thrash out the business that is book. We're erudite. We're witty. We're urbane. We are Latopia After Dark. Oh yes we are. Alan Cowell, welcome. You've written books about South Africa under apartheid and novels about war correspondence and foreign correspondence. What possessed you to write about the Lit- Vienko affair? And be honest, have you ever
1: regretted it? I've never regretted it. I remember when I started writing it, I thought, well, maybe here I'm, I'm going into uncharted waters. I don't want to mix... Well, it's the same metaphor, am I out of my depths? Um... And you know you don't know if you start writing about the successor agencies to the KGB. Yeah. Uh, you're living in London. It's the center of KGB, former KGB, uh. Uh, FSB operations yeah. uh, outside of Moscow, whether you're making yourself vulnerable to some kind of reprisal. So there was a degree of looking over my shoulder. Uh, I did... Um, I was concerned. I went to Moscow to interview the man who was finally accused of killing Alexander Litvinenko. That was a fairly scary encounter too. And so I think that uh, although I would say I would say that although there were certainly moments when I, I worried uh, about whether I'd bitten off more than I could chew, I certainly never regretted embarking on, on this venture. Because to be serious,
0: I mean, journalists have, have been killed, haven't they? Quite a lot of journalists, actually, over the past few years.
1: Well, particularly in, in, in Russia, uh, they've mainly been, there's only been one, I think one foreign journalist to my knowledge, but a lot of, of the, you know, the um, Committee for the Protection of Journalists uh, and a lot of advocacy groups, journalist groups, uh, do rank Russia pretty high in, in, in the list of those countries where, where the, the job is dangerous.
0: So when you accepted our invitation
1: to come along here tonight, was your heart in your mouth? Oh, absolutely. I didn't know who you guys were, and I still don't, you know. I mean, have uh, there
2: been any threats against your life, Alan?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, if if you were being watched by a professional international uh, intelligence agency, would you know? I doubt it very much.
2: Have you, f- have you felt moments of paranoia where you've thought that someone's following you or anything in that regard? We are in serious es- professional espionage territory, so... The question I I hope is valid.
1: Well, to research the book, I was moving in circles where you met people whose background was not immediately clear, who wanted to obfuscate where they were coming from. Uh, what what they were about, what they knew, what they didn't know. They they live in a world where information is gold. And if you've got a little snippet that goes their way, that might help them move it in some other area that you don't even know about. So, of course, paranoia is, is fairly... Uh, is, 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 a, is a, what can I say? It's good uh, trade, yeah.
0: Now, this is uh, suddenly turning into quite a hot area again, isn't it? Because Warner Brothers apparently have snapped up film rights. Uh, Johnny Depp is slated to play the protagonist.
1: I mean, how's all that going? Well, as far as I know, um, there is a script, uh, there is a studio approval for the script, and we have. Um, there have been various directors mentioned. I'm not sure that Johnny Depp's still involved, but certainly it's not, a, as far as I, I know, uh, the project is still uh, remotely alive somewhere in Hollywood. Of course, the inquest starts on the 1st of May this year, and that
0: is very likely to reignite international interest in, in this long-running case, isn't it?
1: Well, the, in, the inquest is the first and only time so far that the players in this investigation will be obliged to testify under oath about what they know and some of the most important players uh, have never had to do that before the british police um, the intelligence services um, th- this is this is be a unique opportunity to try and unravel what, what happened beyond what we've been able to establish by our own diligence.
2: Well, Pete and myself, and I'm sure the chat room have tons of questions for you, but if you could walk us through the basics of the story, starting with who was Litvinenko? Sure.
1: Uh, Alexander Litvinenko was a former KGB officer when the KGB... Uh, was uh, replaced by the FSB. He became an officer of the FSB. He was in charge of a unit that was investigating organized crime in Russia. He fled um, after an argument with the man who was to become president, Vladimir Putin, uh, uh, become president twice in fact, In, in 2000. He took up residence in Britain. He became a British citizen in 2006. Um, he'd been a whistleblower, he'd been, a, some people had called him a gadfly, he'd been in this world of information gathering, of not really, um, it's not espionage, but I think the the term would be risk assessment, risk analysis, that kind. It's a very murky world, a lot of former intelligence and serving intelligence people uh, gravitate to it. He'd been part of this world. Um, He became a British citizen with his family, uh, his uh, wife, Marina, his uh, teenage son, Anatoly, in in 2006. And weeks later, this whole episode actually uh, began. Um, He was taken to hospital in North London, near where he lived, in Moswell Hill. Um, They couldn't work out what was wrong with him. Uh, He was... He would a, a, a doctor or you know, a nurse on duty in a North London hospital believe somebody who said, look, I'm a former KGB <laughs> agent, exactly. the Kremlin did this to me. He'd be in the psych board. ward exactly. yeah. right yeah. away. So immediately, yeah. That's what happened to me. But in fact, he, let's not forget that Alexander Litvinenko, since his time in Moscow, had a very, very important sponsor a friend, uh, employer, uh, who was uh, the oligarch Boris Berezovsky.
0: Now, Boris Berezovsky is one of, as you say, one of the oligarchs. and the, Let's just explain a what the major olig- character in huge, this tale. Huge, huge person, um, a, a person of vast wealth. Um, now, the oligarchs arose because when Russia dispensed with communism, <laughs> it decided to go all the way, and it sold off everything, didn't it? And I, I believe at the time, in the 1990s, it's something like two dozen oligarchs Owned suddenly owned about half of Russian economic assets. Also,
2: to add to that, I've I've read that um, ninety percent when the curtain came down, when the Iron Curtain came down, ninety percent of new business applications were made by former Secret Service KGB agents. Well, I
1: think uh, certainly um, Boris Berezovsky had been a, a, a maths uh, professor at, at the university in Moscow. He had not he'd been a business, he likes to say that he started in business simply by uh, the fact that um, a lot of uh, Russians liked Mercedes cars. So he'd Mm. he'd fly to Germany, he'd buy second-hand Mercedes, he'd make sure they were driven to Moscow, and he sold them at a great profit. He ended up, of course, taking over the biggest car uh, company in, in, in Moscow, in Russia, along with a whole lot of other businesses. The essence of an oligarch, uh, is, is someone who's, who's got a foot in both business and the political camp. And Boris Berezovsky, by his own account, was very close to uh, Boris Yeltsin, the the president before Vladimir Putin.
0: Who who presided, and it was Yeltsin who presided over this massive sell-off, wasn't it, of the state? Oh, indeed. And, yes. and, and
1: people were buying, they were able to buy uh, uh, into um, what had been state companies for the 70, 70 years of the revolution, at, uh, you know, spire sale prices. But uh, cer-
2: certainly things like media companies and oil and gas rights, mineral rights, went for a song to former Secret Service employees.
1: There was a close connection indeed between the uh, the uh, organs of state power and the and what became a private sector, yeah, sure. So you've suddenly got vast
0: wealth creation, just enormous amounts of wealth, and along with that, as always inevitably there's corruption. But to begin with, Berezovsky, who was you know, quite a significant person in
1: the story, was an ally of Putin, wasn't he? Indeed. Uh, there are various points in, in Boris Berezovsky's career um, when he's seen very clearly to be uh, sponsoring and throwing the weight of his media Mm -hmm. empire behind first Boris Yeltsin and then Vladimir Putin. But when uh, Putin took power, he made it very, very clear to the oligarchs that their days were over in the way they'd been running things up until then. That they could certainly uh, amass large amounts of money, but their political influence was over. And some of the oligarchs went along with that, and some resisted. And Boris Berezovsky fell out very severely with Vladimir Putin. And and in 2000, the year 2000, he wasn't far behind Alexander Litvinenko in in arriving in the UK and seeking uh, asylum. So what was the
0: essential connection between Litvinenko, I'm I'm having problems pronouncing these names, you do much
1: better than I do, and... Berezovsky. Litvinenko had been the investigating officer in an attempt on Bar- Berezovsky's life in Moscow, and that brought the two together. And he then became quite a habitué at the the uh, the sort of salon that, that Boris Berezovsky held in, in in an upscale mansion in Moscow.
2: So you said that Alexander Litvinenko had a falling out with Vladimir Putin, which is part of the reason that he left. Russia and came to the UK. Did that have anything to do with bear wrestling?
1: <laughs> that had no bear wrestling in the broader term of corruption, maybe.
2: Uh, Which is, of course, what I meant.
1: But uh, he certainly, there was when Putin, uh, remember that both. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Alexander Litvinenko had risen to the same rank. They'd both been colonels in the KGB. Mm. They were equals in that sense. And when Putin uh, became the head of the FSB, uh, the, the, the successor to the KGB, the domestic successor, uh, Alexander Litvinenko went to him with a list of Officers he regarded to be corrupt and, and he was ignored and, and he fell out with Vladimir Putin.
2: Over a list of corrupt officers. It had nothing to do with Judo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what actually drove Livyenko into exile here? He was arrested. Um, he fought, uh, he was arrested and, and acquitted um, on um, charges. And the minute he was released, he was rearrested by a uniformed... Um, FSB officers and thrown back in jail. He was, it was made very clear to him that if he stayed in, in, in Moscow this would be his life, that he would be constantly regarded as someone to be harassed and, and, um, and imprisoned and, uh, and so he decided to flee, which wasn't that simple for him. His, his papers had been taken away from him as a result of the legal cases against him and he fled on a very circuitous route. You've got in London here,
0: you've got a community of expat Russians many of them very wealthy, I think, um, who find London a very congenial place to live, fairly safe place to live. So you've got this this little subcommittee going on. And in it, there seems to be, just from reading, continual plotting and subterfuge. And Putin seems to be pretty much the enemy who unites most of them, is that right?
1: It's very varied, I think, because if you think of exiles of their nature are prone to conspiracy. It's the only way they're going to get back home. They have to plot their way back home. No one's going to let them go home and they haven't got the physical power to push themselves back home, so conspiracy becomes a normal state. But there are t- two very clear groups. You have got former enemies who've come here uh, to the UK as they have to other countries, but primarily to to the UK simply because uh, it's close, and they speak the language, and there is a community here of like-minded people. But against that, there are an awful lot of Russians who have come to to Britain, and they've made it. They've given it this name, London Grad. Uh, It's schools, housing, it's where they live. They do business back in Moscow. It's a a three-and-a-half, four-hour flight. It's a commute, essentially. And they live here in conditions that are preferable to being in Moscow. I mean, it's
2: amazing for some to even contemplate this, but the weather here in London is, in fact, better.
0: Yeah, It's quite a
1: comparison, indeed.
0: (laughs) So now, everything really hinges on events on the day 1st of November 2006, doesn't it? Can Mm. you tell us, I mean, even was even the events on that day are actually disputed. What happened, and, and why do you think it happened?
1: What happened was that it was, I think it was, from Litvinenko's point of view, it was to have been a fairly normal day. He came in on to town on the bus, he had various meetings to attend to. One of them, which was a, the initial false trail in the whole saga, was with an Italian guy called Mario Scaramella, and he met him in the Itsu sushi joint on Piccadilly um that had nothing to do with his poisoning he then went along to uh, the um uh the pine bar of the millennium hotel in Grosvenor Square just across the way from the American embassy uh and um there he met with uh, several russians uh, of similar backgrounds ex kgb who were in town ostensibly to, to go to a soccer game. Uh, they had a few drinks and Litvinenko didn't drink alcohol, he drank tea. He drank tea from a pot that was uh, brought to him. Uh, then he went, um, after that meeting he had some photocopying and, and he went to Boris Berezovsky's office. Uh, Another of the people Berezovsky um, sponsored was Ahmed Zakaya, the Chechen exile leader. Uh, They lived opposite each other across the road from one another in Muswell Hill, so… They were mates? They're very close friends, yeah. I mean, that's part of Litvinenko's story is his conversion from being uh, an FSB person who would regard Chechen separatists as, as, as the enemy. To a very close relationship with Chechens. I mean, he in, on his deathbed he converted to Islam, um, which uh, was wow. Fun.
2: Because that that's something that that struck me as as interesting is the because this is such a shadowy world. Alexander Litvinenko is often painted as the protagonist to be played by Johnny Depp, but was he not involved as a KGB agent in suppressing the 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 Chechen? Uh, the Chechen Revolution, for lack of a better word. No, certainly,
1: his first, his first encounter with the Chechens, his first hands-on experience there was uh, during uh, the, the the first Chechen War when he was on the Russian government side. So that and is he was f- interrogating. Uh, prisoners and there are various So that's accounts. a fact,
2: he was involved in, in torture of Chechen well, civilians. I don't know I if mean, if it was oh,
1: torture, I, I wasn't there. But,
2: but he mean, was a KGB agent in charge of interrogating well, Chechen civilians. Well, he was civilians. an officer
1: rather than an agent, but he an was, officer, his excuse job me. was to to talk to people. In fact, one of the very interesting sides of this is was that uh, he, when he just got to the UK, he gave a long interview to uh, Gerald Seymour uh, my fellow uh, novelist and good yeah. friend, um, and in that interview, he, he, Gerald, in fact, based one of his characters on Litvinenko because his notion of questioning was not fingernail pulling; it was a much more subtle uh, combination of, of of a stick and carrot. And uh, while his enemies will say it was all stick. Uh, certainly, the impression from that interview, which I saw the transcript of, was 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 that he was a he had a very keen sense of how to persuade people. So he had a nuanced he
2: had a nuanced interrogation technique.
1: That's the inference for sure.
2: So, f- what kind of uh, what was his carrot and what was his stick, as far as you know?
1: Well, as far as I know, uh, I think it was just to persuade people to befriend them, to pers- show them that it didn't have to be. Uh, you know the way it was going to be. I think the 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 stick that was generally used was was the fact that a lot of these kids uh, who were captured still had family uh, elsewhere. And um, I'm not saying for one minute that Litvinenko would have made those threats, but they must have known that the destiny of their family would certainly hinge on their behavior under interrogation. Okay, so here
0: we are in the Pine Bar, 1st of November, 2006,
1: Millennium Hotel,
0: Grosvenor Square, very, very swanky place, as I say, just a stone's throw away, barely a few yards away from the U.S. Embassy.
2: Which is the only place in London where you can reliably see
0: machine guns. I've seen them there, actually.
2: Every oh, now and again, I've got yes. to go in and renew a passport or whatnot, yeah. and I think, ah, oh, a little piece of America, a little Absolutely. piece of home.
1: Uh, what happened next? Well, what happened next was uh, he, uh, after that encounter um, with uh, the uh, the soccer fans, um, he went home and he started feeling very, very ill, and he was acutely ill. Uh, he was vomiting, and he was in 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 deep distress he was in a lot of pain and he was taken to a local hospital where no one could figure out you know what exactly what was wrong with him and and his slowly but surely uh, his story began to emerge primarily in the UK papers in the Sunday Times was the first one to break it Uh, a lot more attention began to be paid to his case when it was established that he was in fact uh, a former F- FSB officer of of some uh, stature, and he was transferred then to uh, the bigger hospital at UCH. But the problem was that no one knew what they were looking for. They ran all the normal tests, including with a Geiger counter, mm. which was uh, set up to record gamma rays, um, yeah. Uh, but nobody, uh, and, and he, he went from bad to worse. They I mean, thought
0: thallium poisoning for a time, didn't they? They
1: thought thallium, uh, the, one, of the, one of the people who went to see him was a specialist called John Henry who was actually hired by Boris Berezovsky and he actually played a really important role because he realised that when um, he, he shook hands to say goodbye to Litvinenko, there was no loss of strength and uh, if it had been and poisoning, uh-huh. he would have lost strength in his hand. So he began to think it must be something else.
2: So the bad sushi angle, that was actually a bit of a red herring?
1: Yeah, bad sushi, red herring. Yeah.
0: So how eventually did, did they did they detect that this was such an, I think it's the first time it's ever been used actually in recorded history as, a, as an assassination weapon. How did they detect that it was this particular isotype
1: of of Polonium
3: because doctors are extraordinarily clever that 's
1: how <laughs> <laughs> it actually it was it was down to john henry who who'd gone along with the the thallium theory, uh, who had accepted what he was told that there was no radioactivity in in his body, and then he suddenly uh, started thinking, well, maybe it was something else, and at the last minute he contacted the police and said you 've got to get." the urine samples that were taken from hmm. Litvinenko he was uh, and um, and that was it was in fact the last opportunity they could have done um, and that was taken to to british laboratories and they looked for other forms of radioactivity based on alpha rays and they find that polonium has a very distinctive footprint it's it's primarily emits alpha rays as it decays but once every i think a hundred thousand it blips a gamma ray and then you know you're dealing with polonium and wow. that it was never ever supposed to be found out well wow. this was the, if you don't know to look for polonium there is no way of, he would have died Without anybody knowing why he died. Amazing. I mean,
0: fiendishly clever. What? A, 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 unspeakable. Well,
2: really. you say it's fiendishly clever, but it also it, it it's a huge smoking gun because since I knew that Alan was coming on, I've been on the internet all day trying to score some polonium two ten, and no love whatsoever. I can
0: tell you where to buy it, actually. Oh, good. You good. can you can buy a polonium two ten, but but I tell you what, only in tiny, tiny. Well, amounts. that's just it. I mean, tiny
2: amounts. Well, we're talking 65 in order a pop. to kill someone, as I understand, we're talking the level of a picogram. Like
1: it's 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 negligible. You could hardly measure it. The amounts that's required.
2: So, Mike. I- how is it delivered? How do you carry it around? How do you take it on a plane? Is and are we talking about? Uh, because I understand you can make polonium by bombarding bismuth with neutrons, or you can take you know thirty-seven tons of uh, uranium ore and distill it down to microscopic quantities. But either one requires laboratories, requires some serious technology. How how does one go about getting polonium and then? transporting it and delivering it to your target for the uh, anarchist cookbook uh, readers among us
1: well uh in my as my memory is i think 97 percent of the world's polonium is produced in, in 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 russia it's produced in in what used to be these very secretive um, <clears throat> nuclear cities in remote places that weren't even recorded on the maps in the old soviet days um and um it is, it is produced under very, very strict conditions. It is transported under very strict conditions and it's marketed primarily to, to American companies um, and um, for use in, in uh, reducing the, um, the uh, static in, in various uh, processes, uh, printing processes, mm. for instance. But it is not something that it just... You'd, you'd,
0: out you'd never look for it. You'd never look for it, would you?
1: Well if you were looking for a poison that had killed somebody inexplicably, where would you look? But you wouldn't look you wouldn't have looked for polonium. Now of course we're looking for polonium in the body of Yasser Arafat.
0: You know what's on television right now? Well litopia is the antidote good evening. What are your thoughts about the story so far?
3: I I, I agree. I think the the fascinating thing is where it came from because clearly it was sort of set up by somebody somewhere. Um, i also quite like to know if there have been copycat um, episodes, because if this was the first ever, I mean, pure, if it's so fantastically successful, surely somebody else has thought this is uh, a good way of going about
0: it. Well, I was just saying that um, there are suggestions that Yasser Arafat was... No, was indeed, I mean, Yasser Arafat's body...
1: The has,
2: half-life of polonium is so small that if they were to go back to Yasser Arafat, it will have decayed past detectable levels by now?
1: I Well, that's, that's, that's for scientists to determine there could be some kind of tiny legacy trace if you know what to look for but uh you know since it decays every few weeks it loses half of its radioactive power this is a very rapidly decaying uh substance it's not like something you have to put at cellar field.
2: but this is where it comes in this is this is the crazy part is if you're going to poison some with with polonium it seems like automatically you know that it's coming from some deep area deep dark area of russia
0: only if you get found out
2: only if you get found out. Okay, that's fair enough. But this this is sort of a high profile former KGB agent.
0: Very nearly wasn't found out. We heard from Alan. I mean, the the curious thing about I I think it was a fiendishly clever idea to use it. But I want to ask Alan about the execution of the plan because once they found that it was polonium, then they they started to get busy. And it appears as if the, the people using using this stuff. They'd taken the top off and they'd sloshed it around here and there. It was bit, the execution was actually messy, wasn't it?
1: Well, let us if you assume that it was transported somehow in some kind of vial and in a diluted form and in a, form, a way that could be uh, used, i you, know, you, you have to ask whether the people who are accused by the British uh, Crown Prosecution Service of administering this, one man in particular, mm. whether they actually knew what was in the, the whatever they maybe didn't they given. didn't know. And maybe that wasn't known and that wouldn't be the first time. It would be quite normal in a, in a, an intelligence operation to have cut offs so that you know what you need to know, and, and so eat. they
2: used a mule essentially to get it over here. That would be that would yeah, be one hypothesis. Would be How indeed. would one carry it in, in a Pyrex beaker? Will it let? Do you carry I it in metal? I think
1: in it would in, a, in, a, in, a, in some kind of glass vial with, in, in, in a solution. As um, being alpha alpha particles, glass would be perfectly okay to shield it. It's it's only but when doesn't it doesn't get
3: enormously hot. I, I thought that's the whole point. Even a tiny amount gets enormously
1: hot. If it's if it's uh, if it's not in suspension, yeah.
2: Again, this is we're we're into the area of conjecture. But how do you believe, in all your research, that the polonium was actually delivered to him in in the tea? Was it was a syringe used to put it in the tea, or I
1: don't. I was not able to uncover any any uh, reliable account in my reporting of of, of how exactly that happened. Uh, what I knew. What I discovered was that uh, while uh, Litvinenko had been sickening, he'd been spending a lot of time with British detectives, and he'd been able to give them a a, a very close working account of who he'd met, when he'd met them. Remember, he was an investigator, a trained investigator himself, so he was very familiar with how you, you set out your schedule, when you met them, how you met them, where you were, what time it was, how long the meeting lasted, all of these very practical steps. He had told them to uh, a British detective, uh, with whom he clearly struck up a a quite close and and friendly relationship, and that that all that. Didn't add up to kind of to a hill of beans, I guess you'd say, until uh, the use of polonium was uh, discovered. And at that point, it was possible for investigators to put on their white suits and take their alpha ray detectors and go to all the places in this list that Litvinenko had given them. And in all of those places, polonium was found, and the highest concentration was in the pine bar. ...of the Millennium Hotel and in a couple of rooms in that same hotel. So this is what was leading the investigators to put their case together. Uh, again. And also on the BA
0: flights back to Moscow, there were traces, weren't there?
1: There were traces on flights, there, were, there but there were anomalies, don't forget. For instance, one man who hasn't been charged but was at the Pine Bar came through Hamburg... Uh, when the German police read about this in, in a copy of the magazine Der Spiegel, they said, wow, what's going on here? We'd better start looking for it. They found polonium everywhere this guy had been. Wow. At his ex-wife's apartment and various other places in Hamburg. I don't know how many of us go and visit ex-wives in Hamburg, but he was certainly a man who did. And uh, But there was no trace on the German wing's flight that took him from Hamburg to London. So well, how do you explain that? Well, I will mean, it
2: always leave a trail? If I'm carrying polonium from point A to point B and I, I, stop in, I, I stop in a coffee shop along the way, will you be able to follow that trail?
1: Well, clearly, it was, it was, uh, there are two arguments about that. One, the Russian argument is that that polonium was transmitted from within his body. Because don't forget, the people who are accused of killing and plotting to kill Alexander Litvinenko themselves say that they were the victims of a a polonium assassination.
2: Now, as I I understand the nature of the polonium molecule, you can handle it. It won't go through your skin. It'll go through an open wound, Mm. but you need to ingest it. Yes. So if he's walking around spreading this from the places that he's been to the pine barn and, and whatnot, then it would have to be he's, he's, he's urinating on, on his way. He's very sweaty. I mean, how, how does the Russian argument hold? Does it hold any weight?
1: Well, it's, you know, there wa- were traces uh, at his um, ex-wife's apartment of, of polonium in a baby's diaper, a nappy. So uh, you know, these we're talking very small amounts. Clearly, the maybe wasn't poisoned, but it can be. It is. It shows up in urine. Now, Litvinenko co-authored a book, didn't he? That may or may not—I don't know—shed <laughs> some light on on motives here. Can you tell us about that? The book. He, well, he'd written a book uh, accusing the KGB, the FSB, of responsibility for some apartment house bombings, uh, in in um, at around the time. Oh, when was that? In, in the late 1990s, um, that those that, that didn't get much traction in Russia. It singled him out. It, it certainly made him. Um, it was. It was. He wrote that book, as I recall, after he fled to the UK. And
0: the basic idea was that uh, his, his book was called "Blowing Up Russia." He co-authored it, mm. and the basic idea was that. He was saying that all these bombs that had been going off in Moscow and various other cities were not actually planted by uh, Chechen separatists, but they were planted by Russia's own security services, in other words... In order to make the Chechen
2: separatists look bad.
0: And in order, uh, uh, so the argument goes, I think, Alan, to promote Putin's um, presidential aspirations.
1: Well, certainly the idea of having a tough leader who could crack down on the Chechens was uh, part of Putin's appeal. If you remember, he was photographed in the cockpit of a warplane that was going to go on a yeah. mission over Chechnya. He's always yeah. had a penchant for uh, for these dramatic uh, photographs of himself uh, in, in a very macho um, guise. Whether it's sort of fishing bear chest.
2: Come on, we border. all like to take pictures of ourselves on a horse bear chest. I've, I've
1: seen your Facebook page, Ann. It's not pretty. Not pretty. I disassociate myself from <laughs> these two guys interviewing my <laughs> <to> say, okay. <laughs> That's probably,
2: probably, probably the for the best. Connection.
1: Yes. Well, that, I'm glad. Well, that's a very interesting and thing. Then to open that up, just to open that
2: up even further was Alexander Litvinenko employed by MI6.
1: These are the allegations that it came out much later. They're, certainly at the time I was writing and researching my book, I think they were known uh, to his widow, uh she was under a degree of um of of I think she promised to the various services involved not to disclose that the the idea that he was a um, a paid agent of the of MI six is is to my mind it's plausible uh, I think Marina Litvinenko has said that uh, there was a joint account that they had at the bank and uh, they got their uh, standard their monthly paycheck from uh, MI six in Vauxhall it doesn't seem implausible to me he was a person that if they weren't interested in should have been, because he had a lot of contacts. They would,
2: Can uh, be, those deposits be forensically traced back to anything other than a shell company in, I don't know, Burkina Faso?
1: I'd be very surprised if they could be. But that, we hope, will, is the kind of detail we, we're looking to see at the, uh, the inquest. And the, the other a- aspect of this, of course, which uh, emerged uh, several years after his death, was that at the time... Uh, he was killed he'd been closely involved with the spanish intelligence oh. services uh, and what they were looking for was evidence that, uh, linking various uh, fugitive uh, organized crime figures who were living uh, in, in, in impunity in spain they were not committing any offenses in spain uh, two figures in the kremlin uh, uh, in, in the in the perpetration of of the ver- you know all of these uh, Criminal activities mm. you know, we associate with them. At the
3: point he's dying, then presumably he actually parted with really quite a lot of uh, interesting information.
1: Well, he was convinced, wasn't he, that it was it was basically Putin's man. He, he was. He had. There was never any doubt in his mind that he'd been he'd been poisoned. He didn't want initially to to blame a fellow Russian uh, because he didn't want that to come out because he thought it might influence the investigation uh, that his relationship with the man who was accused of. Uh, by the Crown Prosecution Service of, of Murder is, is quite a complicated one because in some ways they were business partners, in some ways they, they'd they socialized in the same circles. Uh, they'd met at, uh, oddly enough, at uh, Boris Berezovsky's birthday party about oh. a year before. Sure. Um, at sure. Brun- Man, that was Lannan a good Paris. party. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so, um, um, it, you know, sure, it, it was... Uh, it was um, that was a, 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 a relationship that we, we, it's hard to um, actually know how that worked. I went to Moscow and I interviewed the accused killer. Um, and um,
2: a man by the name of
1: Andre Lugovoy, a former KGB bodyguard. Who has denied that he he was uh, that he uh, murdered uh, Litvinenko, and who said that he, along with Dmitry Kovtun, was in fact targeted um, uh, in a Polonium plot? Uh. Well,
2: this is an interesting twist in the tale, in the fact that he was here, and now he's in Moscow, and now they're saying they're not going to send him back to face charges, or to is, is that true?
1: Well, that's yeah. The Russian constitution, so we're told, does not allow. The authorities to send Russians abroad to face charges.
2: Well, that's this. So we're told. Does do you have any I kind think, of no, any I kind of Russian read, constitutional I, scholar that will say there's precedence for this? No, in the, fact, uh, blah blah blah, citing any, code.
1: Any Russian constitutional scholar will tell you that that they uh, that this is um, that it's, it is legally impossible to extradite him.
0: But he's also a member of the Duma. too. He's a member
1: right? of the Duma, mm. but that would only give him immunity from prosecution inside Russia. Uh, but still it gives him a, a status that, um, yes. that uh, elevates him above the ordinary rock
0: But this, this brings us on to the question of motive. What, you know, what What an impossibly obscure way to kill somebody. Why would anybody do this? Now, the obvious first base answer I'm going to put to you, and I'm very intrigued to know what your response is, is simply that he was just considered to be a traitor. That spies of any colour, creed or description of former communists or Americans or whoever.
2: Are you suggesting it was an offhand thing? But
0: no, that they don't like it. They really don't like it when, when their own turn coats. And there's there's, there's precedent for this. Uh, white Russians would regularly be assassinated in, in France in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, of course, Leon Trotsky... Another you know, famous revenge assassination there. Uh, George I. Markov, 1978, Bulgarian defector, killed in an equally improbable, obscure outre Way here in London. It, uh, it may be... With the
2: poison-tipped
1: umbrella. With,
0: absolutely.
1: Maybe, Alan, it is simply they just don't like turncoats. That's one theory, and it's uh, an, until anybody uh, comes up with the definitive version... Um, that's as plausible as others. Equally, you've got to decide: Did the people who planned this want it to be discovered? If they wanted it to be discovered, um, then you could make the argument that oh, you could say that this was a warning. This was mm. a signal to all of those people out there who oppose the Kremlin, who oppose figures in the Kremlin, who who um, th- that. This was the risk they were running. This is what happened if you went up against them. Equally, though, you could argue that if the idea was that this would never be found out, which is the the theory I tend to tilt towards, then clearly this was a much more targeted thing. It would have that effect. He dies mysteriously. All of these people, uh, enemies of the Kremlin, in exile, know that Litvinenko, I mean, just weeks before he, he, was, he died, he'd been standing up at the Frontline Club in London and blaming Putin in the death of, of Anna Politkovskaya, a journalist Another who journalist. was killed just a few weeks earlier. So he was, he was not exactly, uh, you know, uh, 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 what do they call it? shy violet
2: so twofold question here if i were to write a book on oh i don't know the kgb blowing up apartments uh how much would my life insurance policy uh go up per per month and how did this story play in moscow is did, was it covered? Was the Litvinenko oh, yeah. case mm. covered in as as well? Maybe not as much depth, but in similar depth to your your work for the New York Times. I
1: think that it was covered remarkably fully because don't forget that uh, there were a lot of uh, journalists uh, who didn't. Um, uh, uh, You know, stick to the official line who are investigative reporters. uh, Are are they still with us? Indeed, indeed. Uh, Some aren't, um, not on this particular story. Uh, so a lot of reporters who covered sensitive uh, business uh, deals, defense-related contracts were killed. Um, he killed
2: how? Drowned in fishing accidents? Well, or, or are we talking...
1: I think there was a particular case of one man who suddenly uh, decided for no reason to go to the top floor of his apartment building and somehow fall out of a window. Defenestration,
0: another technique. Yeah, but So you tend to the theory... That this was never intended to be discovered as an assassination i tend,
1: assassination. I tend if 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 it, if it was an assassination that was linked to a very clear effort to silence him or stop something that he was working on from ever coming to light, then it would make no sense to um, to expose what had done it. The point about indeed the more you think about it the it just- expo- you know you, you wouldn't want something uh, linked to a substance that's 97% produced in Russia.
2: If he was, in fact, I'm just having so much trouble getting my head around all the nuances here. If he was working for MI6, say, in the world of espionage, and I've seen a number of James Bond films, so I consider myself an authority. Isn't he? Is he not fair game for the Russian, uh, for the Russian intelligence agencies? If he's come over here as a turncoat, very vocal um, former KGB agent, defective, working for MI6, drawing a salary, is that not in the world of espionage? Does that make him fair game?
1: No, in fact, that protects him. I mean, that gives him the protection of being a. a you know, d- there are declared agents uh, and. and, and intelligence agents in in all countries where the identity of people uh, is known uh, to the host nation um, this you don't if he's just a renegade um russian dissident um that's one thing you don't i don't think it would necessarily be known to the russian authorities that he was um Uh, that he was on the payroll. Uh, If he had been, they would have had to think twice about this. Someone, you know, would have had to make a call, you know, hey, you know, we do this. You break one of the basic rules. Intelligence agencies don't take each other's agents out. They, They expel them. They do tit for tat. But, you know, the idea that you start a war Uh, By killing an agent, then someone else has got to kill you. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Alan, do you
3: speak Russian, or did you get all your information via a third party? Did you have to go through an interpreter?
1: I went through uh, various interpreters, uh, and what I did was I had my interviews uh, taped, and then I played them back to a second or third interpreter who was not present at the interview and asked them to transcribe them. So I was confident that the translations I was given at the time were in fact what was said. Yeah, it's called doing your research diligently and I'd explain nothing mm. less than New York Times, <laughs> yes?
0: Now, organized crime. I mean, there is a sort of maybe a simplistic theory that Russia basically is completely run by organized crime leading straight up to the top, straight up to Mr. Putin. and you, know, you might as well call him the godfather, I suppose. I mean, how accurate is how that? How do we think? know?
1: I mean, who, you know, who, 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 we, we, that's assumed it's, it's, it's the the most frequent accusation, but it is unknowable, and perhaps, perhaps it is known at the various highest levels of American or British intelligence, certainly the accusation is there. Uh, equally, there are many people in the Kremlin in positions of great strength who do not necessarily uh, operate and do everything... Um, But certainly organized crime plays
2: a huge part in what's going on in in Russia today and the buying and selling of natural natural resources. And just, I'm sorry, but I I keep coming back to the fact that so many Secret Service former KGB agents went into the private sector immediately. Immediately after the Soviet but that Union collapsed, doesn't collapse. make them
1: dishonest. I mean, you, are, are we going to no, say they went, that they were well, opportunists? Let's take one particular uh, figure. Let's take the, the Alexander Levitov, who owns the, the Evening Standard and the yeah. Independent. Yeah, well, and keeps how, them, why keeps would, them going? We're and grateful to him. Going? Yeah. Why would you assume that this man, because he was a KGB economics officer in the embassy in London, is now necessarily, you know? Involved in organized crime. Maybe he just seems to be... Well, I don't trust a the head of the CIA business.
2: as far as I can throw him either. You know, George uh, George Herbert Walker Bush as uh, as president and whatnot in his... You know, I believe the man's probably so crooked as Hunter Thompson used to say, had to screw his pants on in the morning. So we're talking about... We're talking about people who work in the shadows and and are not and are not subject to the scrutiny of your your average politician. So when they move into say I don't know selling billions of dollars worth of worth of natural gas to Western Europe, but uh, well, I
1: mean look at people like Abramovich. He was never in the intelligence services, and he's an inordinately wealthy oligarch. I'm trying to think. Exception or rule, sir? Well, you, you, you've got you've got two. I think you're looking at two different things here. There's the oligarchs. Uh, and who certainly, to my knowledge, were business types uh, who then uh, did very well out of out of the whole collapse of communism through a variety of means that maybe would not uh, certainly would not stand up to outside scrutiny. I think what you're, uh, what the other side of it is is what about figures in the Kremlin who suddenly become directors of Aeroflot or, or big companies? Mm is that you know does is that exclusively russian i'm not defending this practice at all for a minute but i'm saying that well, history, i'm trying to cast my mind back and i'm thinking who were the r- very famous russian oligarchs who had knowingly worked for the kgb and certainly i don't think that applies to well if a they lot were
2: if they were really good we'd never know
1: this is um This
0: is his last statement, which I think is very moving. You may succeed in silencing me, he he wrote, but that silence comes at a price. You've shown yourself to be as barbaric and ruthless as your most hostile critics have claimed. You've shown yourself to have no respect for life, liberty, or any civilised value. You've shown yourself to be unworthy of your office, to be unworthy of the trust of civilised men and women. You may succeed in silencing one man. For the howl of protests from around the world will reverberate Mr. Putin in your ears for the rest of your life. May God forgive you for what you've done, not only to me, but to beloved Russia and its people. That is very moving. Ultimately, though, what is the significance of this one man's death?
1: The significance was uh, the fact that and that was read out, I was there. And he... <laughs> you know, the, he was surrounded, uh, the man who read it out, uh, Alex Goldfarb, was surrounded by television cameras that were transmitting this around the world. The photograph of, uh, the iconic photograph of Litvinenko on his deathbed with the bald and, and looking bleak, uh, that was supposed to, that was taken um, uh, by, an one of the big PR companies in London put that round the world free of charge to anybody who wanted to take it. This was a huge impact on 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 Russia's reputation. I think that um, when it, Vladimir Putin was asked about this, I mean, he was he was nonplussed. I mean, as far as he was concerned, uh, Alexander Litvinenko had been a minor KGB player who hadn't made it beyond Colonel, whereas he had become director of the FSB and went on to be prime minister and president, uh, he was an irritant no more than that. It's not going to start
0: another Cold War. I mean, I'm beginning to... I'm looking at the transcripts of stuff that is leading up to the opening of the inquest and and I'm starting to see signs of the state sort of closing in and closing ranks and thinking, actually, do we really want this to disturb relations and trade between our two countries? And the answer is probably no, isn't it?
1: But that's always been the case. I mean, that's always... From the very beginning, there's always been this balance that, uh, you know, if a a British... Any government... um, any british government or american government who uh, has to insist on a trial has to insist on due process alexander litvinenko was a british citizen killed on british soil or he died on british soil um the accusation by the british crown prosecution service is that he he was um he was murdered so uh if you and it wasn't just a simple murder. It wasn't a hit. It wasn't someone driving by with a Tokarev uh, machine pistol. It was. It was a devious, clever assassination. Alan, I, w- I want to know where we can find you on the on the interwebs, please. Well, I, I'm on. Uh, I'm on on Twitter and. Uh, I don't have a Facebook page and I don't have a website. Well, for obvious reasons, you don't well, want no, to that's to Russians <laughs> really finding
0: out where you are, or anybody else. for that <laughs> matter. Yeah. Ali, let's get an update from you, please, in the chat room.
3: I think, in terms of your point about the Cold War, though, I think the the cooling of relations has already happened. But this is bound to to make things worse, is it not? I mean, the higher the profile, then the more that the um, the damage is done, really. But you can't let that stop the justice going ahead, really.
1: I think you can't. But there there are two aspects to the uh, there. There was a ca- there was the beginnings of a cold war don 't forget that just after this when initially uh, there were tit for tat expulsions of uh, officers from uh, Moscow and London. there was the whole affair of closing down the British Council. There was that weird business about British spies hiding microphones under a rock in Moscow and yeah. then being filmed, <laughs> changing the batteries I mean it seemed incredibly clunky uh, Crash, yeah. uh, but um, so th- the trappings were there. Th- we've spoken earlier about the number of, of very wealthy uh, powerful russians in london who are central to the british uh, uh, property market um you know and and they are woven into the fabric of our society they own soccer teams they own newspapers i mean they own
0: the last remaining independent bookseller in the, yeah, the, the, the well, evening we're, standard we're very grateful to them yeah. mm. Absolutely. I think
2: the most shocking thing about this whole interview Alan is the fact that as an uh, as an Englishman you use the word soccer freely um, <laughs> which is comes as, comes as a great surprise that's an insult yeah, you're apparent. not going
0: to be short of material to write about in, in the future years on this are you it's going to go on and on I th- we'll see what happens with the inquest and
2: do you safely yeah. do you safely expect anything to come out of mi6 during this inquest
1: I think I think they'll have to testify i think whoever testifies will testify in a way we they can't be identified but i think you know the the, the pressure on them is to say something fascinating alan i
0: finally i just say because alan doesn't have a website i think but he has got quite an informative wikipedia page alan cowell just search for alan cowell wikipedia and we'll find your other books there too won't we and
2: Indeed. Some fiction. and let's please yes. plug the book if we may
1: yeah and the book is called the terminal spy and it's published by? It's published in this country by... Uh, oh, and it's published by Alan, Double You've got to get better at this. He's I know, i folks, <laughs>
2: folks, he's actually looking at the book spine uh, right now. No, to no, find no, 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 I'm looking the at... It's published uh, in the UK. Are, you are a beautiful it, man, it, it, sir. It's published by I am transworld. Very, transworld That is why I'm
0: very Good impressed. Good friends at Transworld. That's fantastic. Alan, thank you so much for being our guest. It's been absolutely fascinating show. That wasn't a gunshot in the background. Oh, and just one <laughs> Quick
2: question, uh, just for my own, just for my own sake. Uh, two things. One, uh, when Litvinenko was at UCL. Um, I, had a, I had a blood test, and I'm channeling my, my Aunt Sadie, but I was at that hospital. Now, I shave every, every couple times every week with a razor to keep the, the scalp nice and tight, but will I ever be
0: able to grow my hair again? That's <laughs> wondering why, it's I it do like that. I don't think anyone
2: can answer that. I was there. I was at the hospital. I'm a little worried.
0: Helen, thank you so much. You haven't contributed a lot tonight, but what you have has been sheer quality. Genius. Yeah, and we'll be, we'll be back up to speed this time next week with Dave Bartram, who we've missed sort. So good night from us. Good night from
2: Ian. Hey, thanks everyone for good listening. Night good, night.
0: good night from Ellie. And good night. Good night.